Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, D-Link publishes its private code signing keys, exploiting Windows symbolic links, and why encryption is not sufficient protection. And then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 234 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 17th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week... For 234 weeks is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. So uh, we have a fun show today because something we don't we do. normally do on this show is cover breaking, breaking, breaking news. Mm-hmm. But this story is a pretty big one. It falls right in our wheelhouse, and it literally is breaking as we were recording. So we thought we should probably start with this story. Yes. I think if I remember, do you remember what you said when you caught it during a during a segment break? You said it was like, "Oh crap." <laughs> yeah. Like it's like I was just going to check something. I opened a new browser tab and it's right there. I was like, "Oh." Yeah, we got to cover this. We got to so, so we got a big news story. We got a top, our top segment is going to be big, a lot of news. But where do we start on? So, D-Link has accidentally published its private code signing keys for the firmware on some of its routers and other devices. <sighs> So because of the restrictions of the GPL, <laughs> uh, D-Link has to make the firmware source code, uh, the source code for its firmware available for some of the devices because they based them on Linux. Uh, well, one guy uh, had purchased a DCS5020L surveillance camera from D-Link and wanted to download the firmware. So he goes to the D-Link website and gets a link to the source code for the firmware uh, you know, as with many open source things, it's under the GPL. You can just download it. Sure. So he downloads it, and uh, while looking through the files, I accidentally stumbled upon four different private keys used for code signing. Only one, the one belonging to D-Link, was still valid at the time. Uh, I have successfully used this key to sign an executable as if I was D-Link. Really? So he made an executable that you could run on Windows, and it would say, "This is trusted. This is this is from D-Link. Don't worry, you can run it. It's not malware." That's sort of worst-case scenario, yeah. I would say, Alan. Pretty much. Because there's really, at that point, no tools left to the end user to suss out that this is a bogus piece of yeah, software. Yeah, like, uh, you know, we've, we've seen ones before where attackers have managed to steal someone's private key in order to, to pull this off with their malware, but not one where they uh, accidentally gave the keys away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, really, if you think back to the other episode we had, the private keys for their code signing should probably been in, have been in a you know, like a hardware security module that they would then feed the code into and the executable into and get it signed and get the executable back and never have had access directly to the keys to prevent this from having happened in the first place. So D-Link really needs an HSM to hold their keys because developers had the keys and shipped them with the source code by accident. Whew. So the thing that's really really awful about this is this has got to affect a lot of models that are currently in production, right? I also say, in fact, in some batch, uh, in some of them, there was batch files uh, where the commands and passphrases that were needed were included. So even if the keys were had a password on them, it was like, oh, there's a, sh- a shell script here that will, uh, uh, you know, invoke the commands, and here's the password and sign the the executable. Hmm. Uh, luckily, this certificate, uh, the code signing certificate, has been revoked as it's obviously been compromised, and uh, Foxit. Uh, security research company in the Netherlands where the story broke, confirms that the code signing certificate is indeed in the firmware package, uh, firmware version 1.00B03, which was released on February 27th of this year, uh, was released uh, with a certificate and, uh, you know, the, some of the certificates have been expired, so it was kind of a mistake to ship them anyway, but yeah, hmm. a bit of a mess. Yeah, it is. Uh, Slightly unhelpfully, uh, the original story is in Dutch, and I don't speak Dutch, and the Google Translate led to some hilarious strings of words put together. Yeah, you were, uh, you were a soldier trying to get that all translated, Alan. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll have more coverage on this uh, in the next episode where we can actually get an English version of a breakdown of what happened. And, yeah, maybe some more reports. And have a little bit more detail, because I don't want to jump to conclusions about what I'm reading based on a Google Translate. 
because uh, right. I don't want to give out wrong information. <clears throat> no, but it does seem like it could be potentially disastrous. Yeah. Um, and there's got to be a way they could do that and still be compliant with the GPL. Right. Well, they didn't basically, you know, when they were told, oh, you got to ship the source code. So they just, you know, zipped up their entire working That's, directory, yeah. not That's realizing that they also had the keys in it. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely not required by the GPL to give away the keys. Mm-mm. No, but they were just trying to, I guess, give everything. Didn't really give it much thought. Uh, okay. Well, uh, we have a lot more to get to. So let's start with our first sponsor, DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get your own cloud server. They got free BSD. They got CentOS, Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora. Um, I have uh, even still a couple of Archboxes still running over on DigitalOcean. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. But here's the best part. For only $5 a month, you get a rig with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And now if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, well, then you'll get a $10 credit. So you can take that $10 credit and try that $5 rig two months for free. Go deploy something that might just solve a problem for you. Go use it as infrastructure. It's my Linux on-demand infrastructure. And also, if you're writing locally with Docker... Take advantage of DigitalOcean's extensive Docker support. They have a lot of documentation on that because that's an area where people can create something locally, publish it up on a, on a, a DigitalOcean droplet, and get some real-world testing done. And DigitalOcean even offers hourly pricing, which is perfect for that scenario. And their interface to manage all of this is super intuitive. It's really, really well done. And power users can replicate it on a larger scale with their straightforward API. So just use that promo code SNAPOcean. That gives you the $10 credit. You can apply it to your account, which is really cool. And then you can just run it. And uh, the thing is, is also SNAPOcean lets them know you heard about it here on the show. So it's a great way to support the TechSnap program as well. So go to DigitalOcean.com and use that promo code SNAPOcean. Get a $10 credit. Try them out over at DigitalOcean.com. DigitalOcean.com. And thanks, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys remember, SnapOcean keeps us going, and we really do appreciate you guys using that. And also, I love hearing what you use it for. So tweet me, at ChrisLAS, what your droplets are doing, because uh, sometimes there's some really great ideas that I get to mention on air from time to time. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about this next story, investigating the computer security practices and needs of journalists. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, we've all heard of journalists, you know, being worried that their sources are going to be compromised or whatever, and they need encryption. But being journalists, you know, unless they're Krebs, they don't necessarily know about how to keep their communication safe. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, we've seen this kind of rash lately of people developing tools targeted at journalists to help keep them safe. But the people writing those tools don't necessarily understand the workflow of journalists or their needs. And so the tools end up not being that helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at Usenix, they prevented this uh, technical session where they tried to actually figure it out. Okay. So they actually teamed up with about 15 journalists to kind of survey them and talk about their workflow and figure out what journalists actually need uh, and then, you know, what they could do with the security tools. And the first thing they found was that 50% of journalists don't actually use any security tools uh, for one or another reasons. I'm amazed it's actually that low. Yeah, so 50% of them use no uh, tools, 30% use one or two tools, 3 uh, 11% use three to four tools, and 9% use five or more tools, mm. including you know GNUPG, Tor, Silent Circle, Secure Drop, Mailvelope, you know LastPass, etc. So the fact that 50% of them don't even use LastPass kind of points to a problem, right? You know, they, yeah. Uh, if, if they're having passwords, they're having to remember. Then I mean, they're just average users. They don't. They don't yeah. know about. I'm amazed that as well. I actually fit. That's incredible that half of them are using any tool at all, in my opinion. Yeah, and hence, uh, slide five, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Question mark, exclamation mark. Observation, the computer security community builds a lot of tools that might be useful to journalists, but we don't deeply understand the journalistic process, so how do we actually you know, make it useful for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say those that do may not realize that the tools they are using are ineffective or that the way they are using them is actually hurting their effectiveness. Right? Yes. Uh, I, I can just picture a journalist who thinks GPG signing his email is keeping it encrypted when it's just signing it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Which okay. may be doing the opposite of what you actually want as a journalist, right? You don't want to be able to prove that it came from a certain person and so on. So they have observation. The computer, uh, well, we just did that one. Uh, so, you know, the reporter's like, I report on unauthorized immigrants a great deal and have concerns about how to communicate with them without putting them at risk. 
That said, asking them to use encrypted methods of communication, I think would create a greater sense of uh, threat about talking to me, and that would make it more difficult to get them to talk to me or to write to report on the issues, right? Uh, many are also not extremely computer savvy. Uh, you know, this is sometimes this is something they struggle with a great deal, right? So, if if you're talking to a journalist, also, well, we should go encrypted, and you're like, why? You know, is there a good chance that if I don't, I'm going to get caught and, and thrown out of the country or thrown in jail or something, right? You don't want to scare people off by requesting encryption, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the objective of the study was to uh, conduct an in-depth interview with full-time journalists at recognized media organizations operating across a range of media, including print, digital, broadcast, and wire services, and figure out what their needs are and what their actual workflows are. You know, figure out the typical workflow of a journalist, uh, model security tools that work with them instead of forcing them to use the workflow dictated by the tools. Right. Uh, some of their findings were like the most common way reporters do stuff is audio recordings and digital note taking. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how they document an interview. But many of the participants use third party cloud services, you know, like Dropbox or something, but few actually voice any concerns about the possible security risks of doing it that way. You know, so obviously, just uploading things to Google Docs is not going to be uh, keeping the identity of your source very safe, right? Right. But it uses HTTPS, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other things they learned are that long-term sources are actually the most common, mm. right? Someone who's going to keep coming back and giving you information. Mm. And so, obviously, you know, that puts them at greater risk, so you definitely need some kind of encrypted channel. Uh, in particular, you need to deal with metadata, right? You you don't want there to be a pattern of this person contacting you who's known to be a reporter. You yeah, I mean? for sure. Yeah. So yeah, even, just, if, it's gonna be even if they can't get the content, even if it's an encrypted email, they can't get the content, uh, just showing that there is a relationship between this person and, and the reporter could be enough to cause them trouble. Right? The Snowden use case is rare, is the quote. Yeah. Yeah, so Snowden being, you know, a big one-time data dump that, and then no further communications, yeah. that's not what normally happens. You know, and yeah, then they talk about sense, those different uh, security concerns. You know, the first one is obviously negative effects on the source, right? If you, uh, if we ask for too much security or, or do something too complicated, that's hard for the source. But if we don't, then the source gets caught, and that's bad for them too. Um, obviously, loss of credibility to the reporter if the source of information is exposed. Right? Nobody's going to talk to that reporter ever again if it looks like that reporter uh, wasn't able to keep it keep no, the identity of the source secret. Right. Obviously, the government identifying the source would be bad because, you know, in some countries that will lead to people getting killed, uh, you know, or imprisoned or tortured or whatever, right? But also, you know, it could just be disciplinary actions. Uh, you know, somebody gave information they weren't supposed to and now they get fired, right? Uh, they also have, uh, you know, loss of competitive advantage. If other journalists can find out my secret story, then they can, it's not so secret anymore, right? Yeah, there's uh, just good old-fashioned competitiveness. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, there's, you know, potential financial consequences, like, uh, you know, a business could lose a lot of money if, if the de- the details of a, a merger were about, you know, leaked to the press or something, and, and now, you know, another person steps up and offers more money or something. I'm going through the PDF here, and they also talk about the common reasons why the journalists did use security software. Yeah, and uh, usually that comes down to because the source asked for it, not because the journalist did, except for a few journalists who had had very specific uh, security training. Yeah, yeah. So it's usually because the source asked for it is the only reason. And then, then you have a journalist that's not necessarily crypto savvy trying to figure out how to use GPG. And, no, and it looks know. like a common response from the journalist was, well, then how about we just meet in person? Yeah, and you know, that could be problematic and can also be recorded and monitored. Yeah. Uh, a lot of services out there say they're secure, but having uh, to know which ones are actually audited and approved by security professionals, it takes a lot of work to figure that out. Right? Well, and they so don't the have the tool problem. set to do that. He says, the journalists are like, well, if all we can believe is the marketing, then we're screwed, right? Yeah, because according you know, we've to... Seen, we, we talked about that, that Android app the other day that right. talked about being all secure, and all it did was hide the files in a non-default location. Yeah, according to every app, they're the most revolutionary secure app. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, we have a story in the Roundup, I think, as well, about something like that. Uh, and they'll say, uh, 
One uh, reporter actually goes on to say, there are different types of litigation software that I'm familiar with as a lawyer, uh, where let's say uh, if you have a massive case, you might get a document dump that has 15,000 documents. There are programs that help you consolidate them and put them in a secure database where it's searchable and uh, you know provides a secure place where you can see everything related to a story at once, mm-hmm. but I don't know of anything like that for journalism. And it seems like a, I, I, I question how secure those legal ones actually are, but B, I can definitely see where that would be useful for journalists, especially with a lot of documents, being able to search and cross-reference and so on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we kind of hope to see some of that, uh, maybe not the security side of it, but just the searching and cross-referencing and so on, to come out of the original WikiLeaks dump. It was just like, here's all these cables and, and you know, we can probably learn a lot if we can tie them together, but we just don't, all we have is all this data, mm-hmm. no, uh, you know, semantics about it yet. So, Alan, uh, do you suppose that uh, this is actually going to result in any real tools being produced and released to the public? Uh, maybe. If, if, if the research goes far enough, we would have like this list of requirements and a scope and kind of this idea. Uh, and then we could, you know, make a, a, a design of a, a secure program for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the keynote at uh, EuroBSDCon last year was actually a Bulgarian group that's building something for reporters. Hmm. So I'm, I'm sure this research is very much of interest to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, Alan. Well, any other thoughts on this? But, um, the chat room asked, you know, something like a password manager, but for documents, that might work. Or, you know, you could actually take that concept to each document's encrypted with a different key and then having the password manager as the cross-reference sure. and so sure. on. But yeah. the biggest thing is, you know, normally documents are either encrypted or searchable. Mm-hmm. But how can you do both at the same time? Well, you can't. And so on. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, let me take a moment here, and I'll mention Ting. Boy, am I excited to mention Ting, too, because right now I'm on the road, and my connection is powered by Ting. Thanks to Ting for doing that. So what is Ting? Ting is mobile that makes sense. There's no BS with this mobile service provider. They are just pay for what you use, no contract, no early termination. It's $6 for your phone line, and then it's just your usage on top of that. Go check them out. They're on a mo- they are on a mission. To make mobile make sense. It's flat $6. Can you believe that? Just for the line. Plus, they have an awesome control panel. No hold customer service. They have GSM and CDMA networks for you to get to choose from. Like my Nexus 5 device, I can swap the SIM out and I can switch over to the CDMA network. It's really great. They have super good tools to manage all of this. And uh, they really, really have some incredible sales going on during the month of September. Not only if you go to techsnap.ting.com will you get a $50 credit which is outrageous. You're either going to get a credit on your service or off your first device. But they also have their biggest sale on SIM. You can get a $5 SIM card right now. They have free site-wide shipping, and they have some great phones on sale, including feature phones and smartphones, including the Samsung Galaxy S6 and the Blue Studio 6.0, and the Kyocera Kona feature phone for $68. Go to techsnap.ting.com to learn more and try out their savings calculator while you're there. Go over there and put in your actual usage, not what you pay for. So like when I had uh, <clears throat> AT&T a couple of years ago, I think I paid for either 800 minutes or 1,000 minutes just in case. I'd never once ever used that much. Mm-hmm. And I think I paid for about 300 text messages because I had some monitoring systems that automatically texted me. But for the most part, I use all my messagings over data. Uh, and then I used about you know anywhere between 800 megabytes to 2 gigs of data depending on how much Wi-Fi I was using. And so I plugged all this into the Ting calculator here, 380 minutes, 200, or 20 text messages for automated alerts and things like that, 2 gigs of data. And I was paying somewhere around 130 I think after tax. It might have been 140 but Ting says put it in here before tax. So I put 130 And I'm going to hit the savings calculator. This is how much you would save if this was roughly your actual usage. And you could, you know, come in here and tweak this more or less and see what it would actually come out for you. But if this was around your usage, you could save $1,900 in two years by switching to Ting. That's an average of $83 a month in savings. And you get an average Ting bill for that kind of usage around $47 a month. TechSnap.Ting.com. Support the show by taking a look at their offerings and... Get a $50 service credit or $50 off your first device. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring sponsoring the TechSnap program. I don't know where I am on the road right now. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash Rover would tell you. But uh, wherever I'm at, I'm connecting via a Ting 
MiFi. So that's pretty cool. All right, so uh, let's talk about exploiting Windows symbolic links, Alan. Does Windows is they, are these shortcuts or are these something greater? This is actual symbolic links. Okay. Uh, now Windows has actually had some <clears throat> form of its symbolic link thing since NT three point one. Yeah, that kind of rings a bell. So I kind of or yeah. three point five. One yeah. of the anyway, uh, but. Actual symbolic links on NTFS didn't come in until Vista. Okay. But they've had uh, NFS mount points where you could have a second drive mounted as a directory inside an existing drive since Windows 2000. Right. I've played with that quite a bit, actually. Yeah. So, But basically, they've had some level of symbolic links since 1993. Okay. So So what's this uh, about? Yeah, so this is from Google Project Zero, where they do all their security research. And said, for the past couple of years, I've been researching Windows... Uh, elevation of privilege attacks. This might be escaping sandboxing or gaining system-level privileges. One of the techniques I've used multiple times is abusing the symlink feature uh, of the Windows operating system to redirect uh, privileged code to create files or register keys to escape the restricted execution context. So when you're in uh, a sandbox, you can sometimes create a symbolic link that points to something outside the sandbox to allow you to get access to that. Okay. Uh, so the symbolic link in themselves are not actually vulnerabilities. Instead, they are useful primitives for exploiting different classes of vulnerabilities, <laughs> such as resource planting or time of check, time of use. Mm. So with resource planting, you just put a file in a certain place knowing that something's going to go use that, either read it or run it or whatever. Or then there's the time of check, time of use. So in this one, you know, when the program checks the file, it looks normal, but when it goes to use it, it's different. Oh. So like, you create a symbolic link to a file that you're allowed to access. Yeah. You try to access it, the software checks and determines that you are, in fact, allowed to access that resource. Okay. Uh, well, you quickly retarget the symbolic to point to something that you're not supposed to have access to. Then when you access it, uh, the software allows you since it just checked and you were allowed. And uh-huh. all of a sudden, now you have access to a resource you shouldn't have. I see. It's clever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a small race condition between the time you checked that you were allowed to do it and the time you actually did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this blog post contains uh, details on a few changes Microsoft just did to Windows 10 and is now backported as part of MS-15090 as far back as Windows Vista, mm. uh, which changes who can get certain types of symbolic links. Uh, there's not been many mitigations of this type, which especially they got backported that far. Uh, so many... Older versions of Windows, you know, normally they just get left in, in the cold, right? We've seen other vulnerabilities where Microsoft is like, we would have to rewrite too much to fix it in the old versions, and it would break too much. We're only going to fix it in the new version. You know, uh, so therefore, uh, the researcher feels that this is a good example of a vendor developing mitigations in response to increased attacks using certain techniques, which wouldn't have traditionally been considered before uh, for mitigation. One of the interesting things, it turns out, you know, the drive letters everybody's familiar with yeah. in Windows? Yeah, Like C, C drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually a symbolic link. What? Rockin' my world. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, since Windows NT 3.1. Uh, it's actually been, it's an, uh, what they call it, an object manager huh. symbolic link. Yeah. Uh, so basically, your C drive is actually just a symlink to slash device slash hard drive slash volume 4. Wow. Whatever, whatever partition number... Like, like a real system. operating system. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> the Windows guys listening, you just go, those bastards. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's really, I, you know what, I'm surprised I didn't know that. And I wonder if maybe I did know that at one point and forgot it. Cause that seems well, like I know, a, like, when I've had to use, like, the, uh, a port of DD to Windows, I've had to do things like that. Access things with that kind of a device name. So I knew they were there, but I didn't actually know that C was just a symlink to that. It makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It also explains why you know using Unix style paths works on Windows when you do like slash C colon slash blah 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 mm-hmm. because it's all symlinks in the root. Uh, there's also the registry type uh, symbolic links. So Microsoft has released three new mitigations as part of this. Uh, the first one is registry key symbolic link mitigation. Uh, the simplest mitigation uh, implementation is for registry keys. Effectively, a sandbox process is not allowed to. Uh, ever create a uh, registry key symbolic link. This is implemented by calling the uh, sandbox token function uh, when creating a new key. Uh, you need a, you need to specify a special flag when creating a key uh, symbolic link. Um, 
It's also called uh, when setting the symbolic link value value, which contains the link target. Uh, the second check is necessary to prevent modifying existing symbolic links and making them point somewhere else, although it would be unlikely to be something found in a real system. Mm. Uh, next, they have the object manager symbolic link mitigation. Uh, if an application tries to create an object manager symbolic link from a sandbox process, it will still seem to work. However, if you look at where the check is called, you'll find it doing something interesting. When a symbolic link is created using the sandbox token function, uh, the function is called, but the kernel doesn't immediately return an error. Instead, it uses uh, it to set a flag inside the symbolic link kernel object, which indicates to the object manager that a sandbox process created this link. Uh, this flag is then used by the parse symbolic link function, uh, which is called when the object manager is trying to resolve the target of a symbolic link. The sandbox token is called again if the current caller is not in a sandbox, but the creator was in a sandbox, mm. then the kernel will return an error and not resolve the symbolic link. This effectively makes uh, the link useless for sandbox to unsandbox escalation. So this still allows uh, you to create symbolic links inside a sandbox, but if they're ever trying to be uh, resolved and, and they point you outside the sandbox uh -huh. or trying to be used outside the sandbox, mm -hmm. uh, then they will give it an error instead. Mm. So it means you can still use them so it doesn't break applications because uh, that was the big fear here is that you know, ah, these changes okay. would break applications. So it, it works if your sandbox an application. It's just if it results hmm. in what would be a security compromise, it returns an error instead of letting it happen. Hmm. And then finally, they have the NFS mount point mitigation. Uh, they didn't have to do the NFS file symlink one because only administrator can create symlinks. Uh, so the mount point mitigation. the final NFS mitigation, or NTFS? NTFS. Okay. Uh, so NTFS. Uh, so the final mitigations for NTFS mount points in early technical versions of Windows or technical previews of Windows 10. Uh, you know the researcher found it in uh, 10.103. Okay. Uh, the check was in the NTFS driver itself and explicitly blocked the creation of mount points from a sandbox process. Again, for presumably application compatibility reasons, this restriction has been relaxed in the final version and backported mitigations. Instead of completely blocking creation of kernel function uh, xxx control file, has been modified so whenever it finds the set reparse point file system control code being passed to a driver with a mount point reparse tag, it tries to verify if the sandbox caller has write access to the target directory. If access is not granted or the directory does not exist, then setting the mount point fails. This ensures that in the majority of situations, the sandbox application can't elevate privileges, as it could already write to the directory already, so there was no point using a symlink to do it. Uh, there's obviously a theoretical issue in that the target could later be deleted and replaced by something important with a higher privilege process, but that's not likely to occur uh, you know, in practical examples. And they say... Uh, these targeted mitigations give a clear indication that bug hunting and disclosing the details of how to exploit certain types of vulnerabilities can lead into mitigation development, even uh, if there's not traditional memory corruption bugs. While I didn't have a hand in actually developing the mitigations, it's likely my research, being the researcher, not me, uh, that partially re uh, responsible for Microsoft acting to, de uh, to develop these mitigations. It's very interesting that three different approaches ended up being taken reflecting the potential application compatibility issues that might arise from these changes. They say, excluding uh, any bypass, uh, which might come to light with uh, these should, you know, make entire classes of uh, resource planting bugs unexploitable from a compromised sandbox process and would make things like time of check, time of use much harder to exploit. It also shows the level of effort that implementing mitigations without breaking backwards compatibility can actually require. Uh, the fact that it's only target sandbox and not system level escalation is particularly telling in this case. Uh, and if you check out the actual uh, uh, blog post, mm -hmm. it also has a link to his a video of his presentation where he actually talks about uh, exploits of actually abusing these uh, symbolic link things before Microsoft fixed the added the mitigations. So if you actually want to know how to hmm. exploit them before they're patched then the slides and video are uh, on the blog there. Hmm. That's uh, another Project Zero uh, Google-backed uh, uh, 
pretty big discovery or a pretty big uh, analysis, I guess. Uh, all right. Any other thoughts on that? Nope. That's it for that one. Okay. All right. Well, then we've got another major story to get to. But before we get to that, I'll mention IX Systems. In fact, I'll mention IXSystems.com slash TechSnap, the special landing page we have just for the show. IX Systems is Alan and my favorite hardware creator or a vendor, I guess you could say, yep. builder, solutions provider. I'm not sure. But I'll tell you what. I tell you why we love them. Uh, from a lot of experience over the years of working with major vendors from just about all of the big names you probably come into your head when you think of them. And every single step of the way, they each in their own unique way were deficient and often disappointing. IX Systems, on the other hand, is pretty much the exact opposite experience. It starts really at the sales process. It really is genuinely the best sales I've ever been through. The support is really the best support I've ever been through. And the staff working behind the company, the people that are actually working on the products and designing the future products, are people that are directly related to the projects that most of us depend on when we deploy this hardware. It's a really, really great setup. And they've been around for a long time, so they have a unique perspective on the entire industry. And they have deep, deep relationships with key hardware partners in the industry because they've been around for so long. You take yeah, that base, and that makes an incredible company to buy your hardware from. Yeah, I think the, the best way to talk about the sales experience is it's much more like calling up a colleague that you know knows more about this than you do and asking for their advice on how to build the server. Yeah, Right, because it's actually someone that speaks your language. They're not just some salesperson. They're an engineer or a system in or whatever who knows about the hardware and knows all the different models and can tell you, oh, you know, for that you might want this type of SSD versus this type of SSD, or you know, we can build this as as you know um, Ivy Bridge or as Haswell. Although with Haswell you're buying DDR4, so the RAM is more expensive, but it is slightly faster. So you know. Depending on your workload, maybe that makes a difference. Maybe you'd rather save the money and get more RAM, you know, more DDR3 or, or, you know, compared to less DDR4 for the same money. You really only ever once need to be in the position of where the hardware vendor and the software vendor are playing the blame game and you have an emergency on your hands to never be in that position again. Uh, check out IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There they have a white paper you can get if you're maybe trying to uh, encourage the discussion in your business. I, I really, really encourage you to check them out. I've been with a lot of different hardware companies for a long time. Also, one of the things that appeals to me about IX Systems is their connection to the community because that gives mm-hmm. them a broader perspective of where the technology landscape is going that they are making a living from. They're not just sort of like watching it, but they're actually participating. And they have a yeah, post that we, I don't think we covered. They have a Texas Linux Fest recap. You can yep. check out on their blog. So basically, if you've been to like any Linux conference in North America, I'm sure that IX has been there. It's you know? probably very likely. <laughs> and and the, plus you know, all the BSD conference all over the world uh, and lots of different places. Love it. Check and, them out. You know, they're bridging out of that. You know, they were at VMworld. And yeah, and there's a, they have a post too. up about that as well. Um, where are you going? Are, you, are they going to be there by chance? Um, some of the people will be there. Yeah. Yeah, huh. they're, they're definitely a sponsor of EuroBSDCon. Check it out. There you go. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Okay, Alan, next story has a pretty grabbing headline. Encryption as protection? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. So this covers uh, kind of two different things. Okay. The first one is that, you know, we often see as part of uh, our coverage of a data breach or whatever, it's like, oh, why didn't they encrypt that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. As it turns out, having data encrypted on disk doesn't necessarily help, especially if the data is still live in the system. Mm. You know, if your laptop hard drive is encrypted, but you leave the machine unlocked at, a, at the table at a coffee shop and then go to the restroom, anyone can just sit down and access your files. It doesn't really matter that they're encrypted, right? Very true. Uh you know, in that case, having them encrypted did absolutely no good for you. Uh, you know, the way hard drive encryption works, it only really protects you if you lock or shut down the machine and require a strong passphrase to decrypt the disk when you mount it again. And even in most of those, just locking the machine doesn't actually unmount the hard drive. Right? And so as long as it's mounted, the files are all there and exposed as if they were n- never encrypted in the first place. Uh, you know, but the same applies to a file server or a database at a company. You know, you can have all like super strong disk encryption on your database, but while the database is running, it's accessing the files. And if somebody compromises a server that has read access to the database, right. there might as well not be any encryption there at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of leads us into uh, an interesting case that we don't have all the details on. But in a recent espionage prosecution in West Palm Beach, Florida, 
uh, demonstrates that encryption may not be the be-all, end-all solution that some organizations think it is. Mm. So rather than relying on encryption alone, companies need to adopt and maintain strategies that continue to provide layered security. You know, after every data breach, we hear the same mantra. If only the data had been encrypted. It's like, well, it turns out that probably wouldn't have helped in most all cases. You know, as encryption of data is, you know, as if the encryption of the data is somehow the answer to all data breaches. But again, you know, if the system is online, then the encryption does nothing. And that's why we talked about in previous episodes, like if data is cold and not being used, unmounting it so that it's not sitting around unencrypted is probably a good idea. Uh, so the case that we're talking about in this case is uh, centers around Christopher Glenn, a 35-year-old former defense contractor who now lives in his mother's retirement community. Ouch, they had to put uh, that in there. <laughs> I know. Uh, so he used to work uh, for uh, the uh, U.S. government defense contractor in Honduras, uh, but he was convicted of stealing and retaining classified documents he obtained uh, while he was in Honduras from the computer systems there, which related to the U.S. policy in the Middle East. In preparation for the theft, Glenn, who is a computer specialist, uh, which I'm sure they mean fairly sarcastically, uh, with a U.S. defense contractor, uh, read up on data security in general and encryption in particular. He apparently read articles about TrueCrypt, uh, a popular free encryption software, uh, and used the on-the-fly encryption methods. He noting in particular, in October 2011, there was an article about FBI hackers failed to crack TrueCrypt. So he thought, oh, TrueCrypt is the answer here. Uh, so Glenn figured then he could uh, create an encrypted partition called 2012 Middle East. Way to give it away. <laughs> uh, on his drive uh, and then he created a 30 character passphrase thinking the data would be secure indeed he estimated that it would take the FBI billions of years to crack the crypto uh, through brute force he's like well it's only a 30 character key and and uh, you know it depends on a bunch of things but turns out he was wrong and was sentenced to 10 years in jail yikes According to the case, the FBI's computer intelligence agents were able to decrypt the encrypted files on Glenn's computer, which then became evidence in his case. Given that this is 2015, they did so uh, substantially less than the billions of years, Mark, that Glenn had anticipated. There's no information on exactly how the FBI decrypted the data, but it was likely an attack either directly against his passphrase, uh, you know, 30 characters doesn't matter so much if it's not very random. Yeah. Or against the machine that Glenn had used to encrypt the data. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it had a keylogger on it, or maybe he wrote the key down somewhere, or, you know, but somehow they, they got the key, the he used it somewhere else. to decrypt the key. Yeah. They say, so, you know, based on this, companies need to evaluate not only whether they encrypt their data, but when and how they encrypt the data. For example, we've seen with the credit card processing machines. RAM scrapers capture the credit card numbers and other personal information, which is then encrypted, but they're capturing it in RAM before it gets encrypted and written out over the wire or to the disk. And then the XP malware reads it right out of RAM. Exactly. All of this is part of a comprehensive data security program, which involves access control, data management, ingress and egress reporting, data loss prevention processes, intrusion detection and prevention, managed and monitored firewalls, and other services like threat intelligence and comprehensive incident response. You know, there are no shortcuts here. You know, and encryption, if it's the right encryption, can help, but it's only part of the, the solution. And uh, this, the SANS.edu um, podcast has a great uh, podcast on uh, encryption of data at rest on servers. Oh, cool. I recommend you check out. Yes, that does sound good. Encryption at rest is... Data at rest on servers is really the, you're right, Alan, it is the co- sort of the core overlooked aspect of using encryption. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. Very good, sir, very good. So uh, that's our last news story of the week. So uh, I'll just give a quick plug. Normally I'd mention BSD Now, but uh, we don't, I mean, you should go check out BSD Now. Uh, episode, well, I can tell you what the episode would be because we've heard of them. Okay, yes. great. What is uh, it? So this is the, this will be the second um, week we've been off, right? So that will be episode 109, where we interview Warner Losh uh, of Netflix about uh, some of the work he's done. And uh, he's specifically working on a new IO scheduler for making SSDs more performant Ooh. on BSD. Oh. In particular, Netflix's uh, load 
involves a lot of writing as they download new movies. Ah. And writing to SSDs turns out makes it them a lot slower than reading, right? Hmm. Uh, so it's balancing writing as much as you can, but only up to the level where reading the disc doesn't slow down. So it will, you know, allow you write, you know, 20, 30 plus megabytes per second. Slick, Alan. But it'll, it'll pair it back as soon as it gets to the point that reading is getting slowed down. I want it. That sounds really neat. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm sure they're going to release that as GPL, right, Alan? BSD, which is even more free. Because yeah, yeah. actually it means you could take it into the GPL code. That's true. I was just We uh, can't take GPL stuff, right, but GPL can take BSD stuff. Just, just like, I like pushing hot buttons, Alan. I just like pushing hot buttons. Speaking of hot buttons, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover. I may be... I may be having a few hot buttons pushed right now on the road trip because we're pre-recording, but you can follow the live shenanigans where we're at and meet up with us at meetup.com slash Broadcasting if you're along the trip. We'd like to say hi. Maybe we can say hi to a few TechSnap fans over there. And also your support is very much appreciated at patreon.com slash today. That supports all of the production behind the scenes for all the shows on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. Alan, that was a massive news segment. With all that news done, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Now, sysadmin Doug writes in with our first email. Uh, he says, TechSnap is my favorite podcast slash show, and I've grown to love Lass and BSD now as well. Thanks for all the great content. These shows have made me aware of ZFS, and I definitely plan on using it in some way in the near future. However... I recently had to turn down ZFS's use on a new production Red Hat 6 system as the ZFS on Linux port isn't at 1.0 release yet. I've heard Alan say ZFS is production ready, but it's hard to convince management of that when the version number is .6.4 and it states it's still working on porting over features. Will, when will ZFS on Linux really be production ready? And I mean 1.0. And what features is it lacking currently? Also, once ZFS on Linux is fully ported, will that make BSD less attractive now that its killer app is not so unique anymore? Thanks for your time, says Admin Doug. I don't know that the version number of, of ZFS on Linux is meant to, to, to give the impression that it's not production-ready, necessarily. Um, as far as features is missing, it's only missing features that are new, like that have been added since late after the project started. So I wouldn't say it's really missing anything per se. Uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of new features landing very soon, and it'll be interesting to see once those do land in open source uh, Illumos how long it takes uh, ZFS on Linux to get them. But when you say uh, features, are you talking like tools and abilities, or are you talking core changes to the file system structure? For core changes to the file system structure, but we're talking what are in ZFS are called feature flags. These are new things that are coming. Uh, for example, there's a new one that have res- um, Resumable send, right? Mm. When you do send and receive, you can yeah. resume it. Okay, that's that's a new feature because it requires changing the format slightly. Uh, but it's the kind of feature. Actually, it, that feature might not require anything on the. So the, with side. the feature f- with the feature flag system, it doesn't matter if one's doesn't have a certain feature as long as you're not trying to use that feature, and you can easily not enable that feature on your new pool and not have the problem of. Uh, if you don't use a new feature, even if your new OS, if if your OS supports it, as long as you've not used that feature, you can still import the pool on a machine that doesn't have the feature. And some features are marked uh, read-only compatible, meaning that once the feature is enabled, you can still read it on older versions. You just can't write to it. Makes sense to me. On what do you think mm-hmm. about his last question? There, it will BSDB less attractive if uh, Z- I don't think so. Um, because of licensing reasons, I still have never seen and don't foresee. Uh, uh, distro actually shipping with ZFS all set up, done in the installer like BSD. Definitely has. not Red Hat. <laughs> yeah, uh, and not so, they license it somehow. And th- there are a lot of other things, and you know, how uh, could they do that? Which, well, the, yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Uh, but seems like I'm it's not so, worried. Yeah. And ZFS, or sorry, BSD has many other compelling things other than just ZFS. Right, and a lot of it is just the integration with ZFS into those other things. Uh, you know, like in the Beehive, into jails, you know. Uh, as far as I know, none of the Linuxes have any way to actually do like Solaris and BSD can of actually delegating a ZFS data set into the container. So root in the container can have control over that sub data set but can't do anything to the other yeah. parts of the I don't pool. think there is a way. 
Yeah, uh, Linux doesn't v- have. They use VMs that, for that. Yeah, yeah, um, and and it could be. You could probably do it with ButterFS. You could probably do it. I but. don't think ButterFS has something for C groups or containers on Linux are just not to that point yet either. So, all right, Paul writes in with another ZFS question. So we got two this week. He says, uh, "Dear Alan and Chris, thank you for the great show. In episode two thirty one, you were both asking for email, so I thought, well, let's try it." So he th- he sends in his question. I have a set of low memory machines, both physical. Uh, one is a Raspberry Pi, and the other is a Shiva plug. An OpenStack va- uh, virtual base performing a-, a variety of services. All have 512 megs each. If they are running Linux, they are they're currently using Extended 4. If they run FreeBSD, he's using UFS. I'd really prefer using ZFS on all of them so I could have data set snapshots, ZFS send and receive, and magic bit rot detection. RAID is, or I'm sorry, RAID is not a requirement. I haven't even considered trying ZFS because I thought it needed a minimum of 4 gigs of RAM. After reading a link from a story that appeared on BSD episode 101, Remote ZFS Mirrors and the Hard Way, the author seems to suggest that it's possible to run ZFS on a Raspberry Pi in a mode that is appropriate from my use case. So my question is whether running ZFS on 512 megabytes machine is even remotely practical, i.e. after getting ZFS running on such a machine, is there likely any machine left to be able to do anything else? Thank you, well, Paul. Yeah, so ZFS isn't as big a memory hog as everyone thinks. It will use what you tell it to use. It's just it can be a bit slow if you don't have enough. Do you think it's because when you ever hear about big production servers, people are talking about how much RAM they have for caching and whatnot? Partly, and and it is definitely better to have enough RAM. And depending on certain features, you can't import a pool if you don't have enough RAM. Oh, okay, uh, okay. But that's mostly to do with dupe, and everybody's learned not to try that. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of tuning and stuff. The biggest problem with this low memory systems is not necessarily low memory. Is that if they're thirty two bit only? then the virtual memory space can't be big enough. And that requires a bunch of custom tweaking and so on. Uh, but if you can get it to work, it should be okay, but I, I'd prefer to have something a little beefier. Honestly, my biggest problem with running on Raspberry Pi is you don't actually have a good connection to a hard drive. All you have is USB. Yeah. Now, and if you had the Pi pointed to an NFS share and that NFS share was right on top of ZFS, now you're cooking yeah, with gas. Yeah, you probably have a, a much better setup, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... It could probably be doable, but it'll take a bunch of finagling, and I'm not sure it'll be worth it. Very good. Paper D writes in of IRC fame, and he wants to know if there's any drawbacks to hosting multiple domains on one Nginx instance. Hello, and thanks for all the hard work. I really enjoy the show. I'm moving my hosting from a shared host to a VPS. I have a bunch of static sites that I don't drive a ton of traffic to. I see that Nginx can host multiple domains from the same instance. I'll probably want to add SSL certs, and the Let's Encrypt project is when the Let's Encrypt project is ready to go. Are there any drawbacks to this approach versus having a reverse proxy with several instances of Nginx behind the reverse proxy? Many thanks. Paper D. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah. So I I host like 100 sites with Nginx. It works fine. That's it? That's all you got? Okay. Much. All right. Uh, so say you know, go for you it. Can do, and yeah, if you set up multiple on uh, SSL, it will require the clients to have the... Um, Server name indication, but almost every client does now. Uh, the one you want to use if the client doesn't or whatever will be whichever port you set for SSL with the default flag. That will be the one that we'll get for people what that about, don't send SNI. What about like WGET or curl? Yep, those all have SNI. They, really? They use OpenSSL, which okay. has SNI. Okay, so all oh, oh, right. It's implanted at that level. That makes sense. So that would, that would totally make well, sense. So you know, pretty much what doesn't support for it in curl and WGA. Uh old like Internet Android Explorer? 2X and oh, uh, oh, oh, oh. oh okay. Internet Explorer and Safari on Windows XP. So pretty irrelevant stuff there. That's not that's not a game changer. Okay. We're slowly getting more better and better at that. Um both that um the Qual's uh, SSL tester and Wikipedia have a list of which devices are not supporting yep. SNI. All right, Matthew writes in, Hi, guys, listeners, since episode one. Hey, that's awesome. Uh, great yeah. show, yada, yada, yada. I'm looking for a snapshot solution in order to undo changes when experimenting on my Linux servers and desktop. What are your thoughts on LVM for this purpose? Best regards, Matthew from Sweden. I don't know anybody that uses LVM and is happy with it, but I don't know anything about its ability to do snapshots either. Well, it turns out that in Linux Unplugged episode 110 this week, return of the local host, actually this week I say, this is going to be like three weeks old by the time they hear this, but uh, 
the episode 110 of Return of the Local Host. Check out the last segment of that show. And then also, well, just watch the whole show or listen to the whole show. But we talk about LVM and a new technology that I got uh, wimpy uh, from our virtual lug to say he's willing to try. It's called Datto. And it is a block driver that essentially brings in real-time snapshotting with incremental changes to just about any Linux file system that doesn't support copy on write today. Uh, so it's called Data Block Driver, and uh, Wimpy's going to be trying it and giving us a review in episode 111. So you can hear about 110, the drawbacks of what LVM snapshots are versus this, and then hopefully in 111 you'll get to hear Wimpy's testing results on how Data worked for uh, doing uh, that exact kind of thing under Linux. So we might have an answer for you very soon. In other words, it's in testing. And uh, if anybody has any suggestions, uh, you can go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com and find episode 110, and we have a feedback thread there where I'd love for those for Linux Unplugged because that's an mm-hmm. area we're looking into because I want to implement it on my production machines here that run Linux. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's feedback segment. Please go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send in your TechSnap questions or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our incredibly shape-shifting subreddit, or techsnap.reddit.com. Our first one's about uh, Lassie and Seagate hard drives. Containing multiple vulnerabilities. This sounds nasty. This is a like a, yep. affecting several several Telnet products. It's an undocumented Telnet service that's accessible by using the default credentials as root as the username and the password as password or default password, whatever it is. Like whatever, yeah, default whatever password the default password is. Pass- yeah. yeah. So basically, there's on, on some of these wireless external hard drives. Yeah. Why anybody would want little, that? Like, but, little like little wireless NAS device, because you know everything's wireless of, yeah. in 2015. Everything's wireless. But it's not. It's not really a NAS. If it's only got one drive. But yeah. <laughs> so uh, this wireless external hard drive, which takes the worst things about external USB hard drives and makes it worse by doing it over wireless. Yeah. Uh, has a tunnel interface, and yes, there's a default root username and password, and it's enabled by default. And most people don't even know it's there because the type of people that would buy wireless external hard drives wouldn't know better, or what Telnet is. Uh, so that's that's terrible. Why would uh, that be on? Do you suppose? Just an oops. Probably it was for debugging. It was yeah, or they meant to. Why not even? Have why root? even debug over Telnet anymore? Like really? Why even use Telnet for debug at this I point? Don't know. Yeah, and then uh, separately there was another bug. Uh, a direct request. So basically, if you uh, constructed a certain URL, you could download any file off the file system. Nice. Uh, it apparently only worked for certain. The actual like file sharing. I don't know if you could actually just download the config file for the thing, but yeah, it, it says it was a, a access to the slash media slash SDA two file system. Well, that's which was for, the, for, that's file for a different vulnerability. Oh, the third vulnerability <laughs> is unrestricted upload of files oh, yeah. with dangerous types. I see what you're saying. So you could upload a file into the the one that's actually being shared. So I could just drop some exes on your shared uh, drive, and then you'd be like, "Oh, what's this?" Double click, boom, infected. Man, that's a mess, Alan. That's a mess. So yeah, uh, the vulnerabilities are confirmed uh, as existing in firmware versions 2.2.0 through 2.3.0, dating back uh, to October 2014. Other firmwares may also be affected. Uh, specifically, some of those uh, C devices are from like 2012. Hmm. From the wish you would have thought of it department, hackers abuse satellite internet links to remain anonymous. Poorly secured satellite-based internet links are being abused by nation-state hackers. Most notable, the Trula APT group to hide command and control operations and researchers who were saying at Kaspersky Lab. Huh. How do you yeah, get on so, there? Well, so if I want to send a command to my command and control server that's being monitored, they would know where I sent it from. But if I send it up to a satellite, then, or if I'm getting information fed back from the bots over a satellite connection, it's just being blasted down and anybody with the decryption key can read it. Okay, and so you can't tell the exact location of where someone is when they're but talking to a satellite. Isn't the uplink to the satellite itself traceable? Nope, not really. Right, the satellite's up there in space, and it receives signals from all over the place. And it can't really pinpoint exactly where the signal came from. So as long as you can get access to the uh, ISP's service somehow, as long as you have the the 
encryption code to talk to the satellite so it will receive your packets. It will relay them to the base station, which will connect them out onto the internet. <laughs> and so... Sounds like yeah. a James Bond-level hack right there. Well, these satellites are old and have crappy systems and use really weak encryption. Hmm. Okay. And uh, some of them are very poorly secured, and that results in uh, being able to use them to bounce your traffic off it without anybody being able to tell exactly where you are when you do it. Now, Alan, weren't we just talking about this recently, this uh, this airdrop vulnerability that Apple has mitigated but hasn't fully fixed now in iOS 9? Which yeah, uh, we talked about it uh, last week a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Actually, though, from this report, though, it sounds like iOS 8 is still vulnerable. Uh, no, I'm sorry. They say they did patch 8.4. So if you have iOS 8.4 or iOS 9 now, you should be fixed from the But if you're on the older ones, you might still be in trouble. Yeah, you probably are still in trouble, so it's worth worth updating. So that way you don't get uh, random dick pics. Right, Alan? <laughs> yep. All right, OpenSSL. Uh, when, you came, when, you come to fork, <laughs> when you come to a fork in the road, you could take the well-worn path. This sounds interesting. Yes, yeah, so this is a talk that uh, Intel gave about why they're sticking with OpenSSL instead of going with one of the forks. Ah, I, I, that is, I bet, actually particularly fascinating. I'll have mm-hmm. to take a look. Sadly, it's like a webinar or so. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. All right. So GM took five years, five years to take uh, a report and a f- and then fix a bug in their computer system for the, well, I believe I, it was I, the OnStar Dash system specifically. So it's the OnStar in-car thing. Yeah. Yes. But the big one, I think, is that more that they stealth patched it without telling anybody that it, you know, they basically waited until um, they had fixed it all before I, I, mentioning it. Which I'm, makes I'm, sense, I understand. Five years to fix it, Alan? Five years? Yeah. Well, until the Jeep story came out, nobody cared about automotive security, right? No, I did. But yeah, I mean, this is just, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and then the, then the stealth patches, it's, you're right. That is a whole other thing. Okay, another story from Ars Technica. Researchers mm-hmm. respond to a developer's accusation that they used crypto wrong. Uh, this is uh, a Microsoft research team pointing to CryptDB developers' own paper as proof. Now, this sounds like a little spat back and forth that we often yeah, so kind of hear. Mi- yeah, so the Microsoft researchers, I think, said that CryptDB was doing it wrong, and the researchers like, no, we're not. And Microsoft's like, actually, yes, you are. Yeah, you know, Microsoft, if you, yeah, you go up against Microsoft in that area. They have a pretty good research department. Yep. Uh, okay, moving right along. We were cooking in the roundup. It's like old school here. Did the GCHQ yep. illegally spy on you? What's this one? Yeah, so Privacy International has a uh, system set up to actually complain to the government about being spied upon. Um, <clears throat> hmm. I guess the case. I guess they wanted to build up a case. I suppose. Yep. I like it. Okay, next story in the roundup. This seventy-year-old programmer is preserving an ancient coding language on GitHub. This yes. sounds like a quiz, a quiz question. <laughs> this is uh, Spitball, kind of a related to COBOL. And uh, yeah, you know, we don't want all these old things to go away. We'd like to keep them around so we can learn about them. Mm-hmm. All right, next link in the roundup. Ladies and gentlemen, the Internet of Things. And then it is a screenshot of all these outages, right? Is this- well, this is a bunch of replies to one outage. So it turns out gotcha. that even with the Internet of I Things, see. uptime is still important. So in this case, uh, Nest, Google's uh, you know, automated temperature thing that now expands and has like baby monitors and stuff, had an outage. And so they said, uh, you know, uh, Nest service has been restored. We'll continue to monitor the situation and we'll take immediate steps if an additional incident occurs. And you see a bunch of people saying, well, I, I'm about to sleep on my nursery floor to watch my baby. Thanks a lot. Hashtag disgrace. And also, yeah, you can't tell people who use your products as a baby monitor to try again tomorrow. Very disappointed. Uh, is there an ETA on when it'll be back up? We use our drop cam as a baby monitor, so it's critical that we get this service back. Oh, geez. And, it's, and the other one's like, the 24-7 support telephone line is down too with the message, we're experiencing an issue with our phone lines. I uh, I am not enthused at all about getting a nest or anything like that. You know mm-hmm. this. I I, th- I've, I did cross my mind, and I have I have uh, I have uh, also you know do have the Hughes lights in here, but uh, that's about as far as I went. Yeah, when, when I was having trouble with my furnace two years ago, uh, and it was right around the time I was traveling to Japan for a week, and it got to the point where like I give my furnace repair people the spare key to my house, and they came on like the second or third day after I was gone to make sure that my furnace was still working so my fr- pipes wouldn't freeze while I was gone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we had talked about, you know, they have this, like, Honeywell 
thermo- thermostat thing that you can control from your phone and it'll like Give send you an alert if, if the furnace is trying to heat the house and the house isn't heating up and stuff. Hmm. But I'm like, well, I don't really want this one of these commercial solutions where I'd have to have, if I want to do a smart home type thing, I'd have to have all that brand. And I know, right? Replacement parts would be problems. And like, I was talking to a FreeBSD developer at uh, VBSDCon and, mm-hmm. you know, his dad used to work at Siemens and make these, you know, PLCs and stuff. And that was always his solution. Every time he sees a problem, he tries to automate it, but in like factory scale automation, not home scale. Right. Uh, but they've actually uh, built a little thing using like, I think it was a PicoBone Black or some little device. And he was showing me on his phone how he could turn all the lights on and off at his sister's house, but he wouldn't do it right then because it was like the middle of the night there. And, you know, like ring the doorbell and a bunch of different things. And it's like, yeah, I, if I was going to do it, I'd much rather build a solution or use at least an open source solution that I would be able to control and modify uh, or even just keep alive if, uh, you know, unlike a commercial product, which might just stop working someday, and where I wouldn't be able to get spare parts if something did break five years down the road. You know, nothing worse than having a smart home and then five years later, start, components start to go bad and, and you can't get replacement parts anymore. Speaking of replacement parts, that kind of leads right into the next story, doesn't it? Uh, why we need the right to repair our gadgets. Uh, and this uh, author, uh, Jeffrey Fowl- uh, Fowler, here goes into talking about how there was a great example recently where someone had their Samsung television go out on them. They were ready to go buy a new TV. They checked the Samsung website. They didn't see anything about repairs. But they decided to do a little investigating and Googling and discovered for $12 they could fix the, par- the problem. And so they go on to make the case in this article asking, you know, why is it that we don't often encourage people to do repairs? Why don't we make repairs more easily? And, you know, why are our laws getting more and more restricted on what we can do with these devices? Yeah, you know, uh, I remember when TV and VCR repair was like a whole line of business. Yeah. And, and now it's uh, under the DMCA, you're not allowed to look inside your TV. <laughs> Yeah, all this stuff. You know, there was the repairman. In fact, the repairman that would come and fix your stuff was such an iconic image that Maytag had the the brand of, you don't need the repairman with our brand. The repairman's yeah. going to be bored with Maytag because mm-hmm. the, the, somebody that came around and fixed the things you owned was a common thing because you would repair them. Yes, yeah. and nowadays it's no replace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so you got a story in the round. Well, especially with, like, the planned obsolescence and stuff. It's pretty crazy. Oh, well... Don't get me started on that. I mean, yeah. that's exactly where we're going. Well, that's what this now. article is all about, and you should definitely check it out. Uh, tell me about the Steve Wozniak article that you grabbed. Yeah, so this one came up, uh, and I was quite nice to see this. So uh, Woz, being the awesome person that he is, uh, when he gave an interview, it turns out there was like a, a 12-year-old who was doing a project for school, and he gave them uh, three 10-minute interviews, so basically a nice half hour broken up into three parts. Uh, interview with Woz about various things, about being an engineer and how he got started, but there was, you know, the obvious questions about some of the initial Apple products. And uh, I just love that, you know, Woz is usually obfuscates a little more than coming right out and saying, quote, Steve Jobs played no role in my design of the Apple 1 and 2. I did this before he even knew about it for my own reasons. Yeah. yeah I think, yeah. yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think most techie people kind of know that, but I don't think most people realize that Steve Jobs never invented anything. I, yeah, I think a lot of people think, think, and also I think some of the movies that have come out kind of make it sound like he was the inventor. He was the business person. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and uh, um, he also, he, he saw what, how the products could be used in a way that Waz didn't. Right. Um, so, but you know. none of it would have existed without Waz and his, right. his work ethic yep. and so on. So uh, Symantec uh, slash Geotrust is revoking some SSL certificates for the .pwtld. Aww. Yeah, they decided there was uh, too much spam coming from it, so they just nuked a bunch of people's certificates, including go. some that were innocent bystanders. Yeah. <laughs> in particular, uh, there's this one guy here who runs, uh, I think it was uh, crypt.py, and it's uh, for tracking whether, you know, all these password breaches and, and the hashes. Mm, canary.py. So yeah, canary.py, which was to tell you when your um, password had been leaked in one of these breaches. Right, that's a useful service, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but they decided that he was hosting spam spyware or malware and took his SSL certificate away. Wow. Uh, and it's like, so I paid for a certificate and you took it away and you say, because I'm a spammer, I don't get a refund. And I, I wasn't spamming or hosting malware. Your, it was a false positive. Your, your test was bad. But he lost his certificate. <laughs> Hopefully Let's Encrypt will solve this for him. Uh, that just feels like um, sloppy work. Sloppy yeah. work. 
Yeah. Uh, but you can imagine, you know, if you're a if you're a business trying to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, Alan. So this uh, this is what got to be one of our fast, like the most links, but uh, time uh, fastest time going through the roundup, and we mm-hmm. end on a tweet, and that is from Christopher S. I'm going to say. He says the State Department's email server is named after Henry Stimson, who said famously, gentlemen, do not read each other's mail. And then he links to that. Is that real? Is that true? Yep. <laughs> That's funny, Alan. Uh, it is, uh, I guess it is unseemly to read each other's mail, isn't it? But we'd love to read your email. Email us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go to the contact page and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. A big part of our show is fueled on your questions. It also gives us an idea of the type of topics we should cover. You can also influence that by going to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. And don't forget about the TechSnap RSS feed. Then you just subscribe to that and you get us automatically every single week. You don't have to worry about if we've pre-recorded or not, but you can check the calendar at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for any of those updates and watch us live at jblive.tv. A lot of info, Alan. Is there anything else we need to put out there? Uh, also, just say that if you're interested in helping out with the BSD Now podcast, uh, we've uh, put out a call to find our new producer. New producer position. Cool. Yes. Uh, and that's available at uh, bit.ly slash... Um, BSD, what's it called? <laughs> BSD. Fine to fine. BSD uh, producer. BSD slash BSD producer. Yeah, so if you would like to help out the BSD Now show, and work yeah, with Alan we have and Chris. A, a form there that you can fill out and uh, let us know cool. what you're interested in, what your capabilities are, and so on, and we will try to uh, find the person that will help us make the podcast good. Very good. Bit.ly, bit.ly slash BST producer, right? Yep. Okay, very good. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.